1: Welcome back to Misconduct, I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen?
2: I'm good. Um, We had, what did
1: we do last week? We had, oh, we had dinner that was not
2: podcast related last week. That was fun. Um, I've been good. I've just been kind of, in like a weird lull of just like work at work, you know, there's no real holidays or anything coming up or anything like that. So
1: not much has been going on with me, but uh, how about you? I've been good. Just, you know, been working on actually two cases. So I finished this one this week. We're going to be talking about tonight. But uh, the other one, which was actually going to be slated for recording, as you know, this week, got pushed because it kind of got a little crazy. There's some twists and turns there. So I'm waiting to talk to more family members and hopefully the sheriff's department and things like that. So it's just been busy, but good. I am excited for that
2: case. So hopefully we can record it soon
1: yeah yeah it's a good one and i also wanted to mention again that we are going to CrimeCon. we aren't official guests but we cannot wait to hang out with our pod friends and some of you guys we hope to see some of you there so you can join our facebook group and let us know if you're going we already heard from a few of you that you're going so that's going to be awesome to meet some of you guys and we hope to meet more we'll hopefully be working out some meetups with some other podcasts as soon as the schedule gets released for CrimeCon.
2: Yes, and then also we're going to be in L.A. in March for the Gen Y meetup, and Lainey from True Crime Fan Club is going to be there, and Haley from Murder Road Trip is going to be there, too. I saw on Facebook
1: like a couple days ago, so I'm excited about that, and so hopefully we'll see some of you guys there as well. Yeah, but now let's get to this week's episode.
2: In the early morning hours of November 1st, 2004, Lauren Mianza, Leslie Mazzara, and Adrian Insagna were sleeping in their Napa, California home. Lauren would be woken up by the sounds of a struggle and her roommate's screams.
1: When she climbed the stairs, she found a horrific scene. Leslie and Adrian were both brutally murdered. Over the next year, Napa police, who hadn't seen a homicide in three years would interview 1,300 people and take 218 DNA samples, but would make no arrests. Until they caught a break, the murderer would turn himself in. Tonight, we'll take you through the double homicide that rocked wine country, the investigation and conviction of the man responsible for taking the lives of two promising young women and his surprising connection to them. So Napa, California is called, you know, a.k.a.
2: wine country or Napa Valley, I'm sure A lot of people have heard of it. It's a county and city north of San Francisco. It's beautiful there. You're surrounded by these gorgeous wineries, vineyards, beautiful country roads. And there's like a cute little downtown area. It's a really touristy area. So Napa is basically just this like really nice
1: place to live. And it's a great place to visit. I ride through Napa all the time on my motorcycle. It's one of my favorite places to ride, honestly. And I've gone to a bunch of wineries in Napa. I love wine tasting in Napa. Some say living in Napa is a lifestyle of sorts. People love to live there because it's, you know, it's gorgeous, it's relaxing, it's safe. It's also a huge tourist area on any given day, especially on the weekends. There are thousands of visitors from all over the world who come to Napa to experience you know, wine country. You know, Just think of hot air balloon rides and the vast vineyards, spending the day wine tasting on an outdoor patio while looking at the most gorgeous land imaginable. It's just kind of a really idyllic place to live and visit.
2: And that's where 26-year-old Adrian and Sogna and 27-year-old Lauren Mianza lived together in a house not far from downtown. Lauren was a volleyball coach at a community college, and Adrian was an engineer for the Napa Sanitation District. They loved this house, and Adrian's mom recalled how excited Adrian was to move into this house and was planning on living there for a long time. It was nice, large, and close to downtown, everything a young person would want or need in a house— and Adrian and Lauren were both very much into sports, and Adrian's best friend and coworker Lily, recalls Adrian being outgoing, nice, emotionally strong, and just a tough person. And saying Adrian was tough was putting it mildly. In 1994, when she was still in high school, Adrian was in a car accident that almost killed her. She had a long recovery, and she suffered from short-term memory loss and had trouble reading But she overcame all of that and went on to win a scholarship to college, became an engineer, and landed
1: a job at the Sanitation District in Napa. In June of 2004, Lauren and Adrian's house got a third roommate, Leslie Mazzara. Leslie was from South Carolina and moved to Napa after a breakup with a boyfriend. Leslie was a, you know, Southern beauty queen, and according to her mother Kathy, when she was younger, she wanted to be a mother, a teacher, a nurse, and Miss America all by the time she was 21. Leslie was gorgeous. She had beautiful dark brown hair, bright green eyes, long eyelashes. She also had a beautiful personality to match. She was fun and outgoing. Everyone was drawn to her bubbly personality, and she was just loved to laugh. As her friend put it, she was enchanting. You would just fall in love with her the minute you met her.
2: So as we said, she moved to Napa in 2004, and she worked as a greeter at the Nibom Coppola Winery, and yes, that is... Francis Ford Coppola's winery. Leslie would always joke when she asked how the job was going that, quote, Coppola hasn't quite discovered me yet. On Halloween night 2004, all three girls, Lauren, Leslie, and Adrienne, passed out candy to the neighborhood kids and everyone went to bed before midnight. Leslie and adrian were upstairs in their rooms and Lauren was downstairs in her bedroom. Lauren was interviewed by Dateline and we'll link uh, the episode on our website so you can check it out as well and she gave an account of what happened next. Just after 1 a.m., Lauren was startled by the sound of breaking glass and loud noises coming from upstairs. She laid in bed for a second, trying to decide what she was hearing, but she knew that something wasn't right. She then heard a scream, so she jumped out of bed and again tried to figure out what was happening. She then opened up the door, went outside her bedroom to hear better, and that's when she heard someone running down the stairs right in her direction. She decided to run out the back, but then realized that she may be opening herself up for danger, showing whomever was in the house where she was going. Lauren was terrified, so she just stood there defenseless. But she never saw anyone, so she waited till she felt like they were gone, and that it was safe for her to go back in, and so she did.
1: Lauren didn't know what to expect when she went upstairs, but she knew it wasn't good because she heard screams and cries for help as she made her way up the stairs. Adrian and Leslie were in Adrian's room, covered in blood from multiple stab wounds. Adrian was still alive, but barely. Lauren slipped as she walked in the room and realized that she was slipping on the blood of her roommates. Lauren fled the house and called 911, but unfortunately, when the police and paramedics got to the scene, both Adrian and Leslie had died. There hadn't been any homicides in Napa since 2001. It wasn't long before Adrian and Leslie's brutal murder was nationwide news. Initially, friends thought there had to be some accident, but soon faced the harsh reality that their friends were murdered. Adrian's mother was in Australia when she heard the news, and Leslie's mother was in Michigan. Both, as you can imagine, were devastated, and I don't think that even describes what these women must have felt and still feel. Investigators pretty quickly realized
2: that this was not a random attack, because the person seemed to know where to go in the house and was in and out quickly. The window downstairs was broken, and from what they could tell, the assailant went to Leslie's room, attacked her, and then entered Adrian's room and attacked Adrian. Adrian put up a fight, though. During an interview with Dateline, Lily, Adrian's best friend, said that she noticed during the viewing of Adrian's body that they had dressed her in a turtleneck. And Adrian always hated turtlenecks, but Lily said they dressed her in that turtleneck to hide the marks that she had from the struggle. But this turtleneck showed that Adrienne fought and that she fought hard and that she hurt the killer. They left their blood on the blinds as they fled the house. Now, the police have the DNA of the person who's responsible for Adrian and Leslie's deaths. And that's because Adrienne basically was not going to go
1: down without a fight. Police also found several cigarette butts smoked down to the filter outside the house. Investigators figured it was a killer waiting outside, biding their time, or working up the courage to go in. The cigarettes were a brand of camel cigarettes, Turkish gold, but the police kept that to themselves and sent the cigarettes and the blood to the crime lab to see if the DNA on both were a match. Police interviewed people close to Adrian and Leslie, boyfriends, suitors, ex-boyfriends, friends, etc., and just didn't get anywhere. Then, Through looking into an ex-boyfriend of Leslie's, two possible suspects emerged. William Lee Youngblood Jr. and his dad, William Lee Youngblood Sr. William Jr. was Leslie's ex-boyfriend, and she had broken up with him right before she moved to Napa. Amy, who was a friend of Leslie's, was interviewed on Dateline, and she said that the investigators had talked to her about the Youngbloods. Amy told them that William Sr. made Leslie uncomfortable. He would call the house that she shared with his son— but he would call to talk to her. And it got to the point where Leslie started dodging his calls because she was just weirded out by him. Police flew to South Carolina and talked to both William Jr.
2: and Sr., and they both gave DNA samples, and they were soon cleared of any suspicion. Police also focused on Adrian's on-again and off-again boyfriend, Christian Lee. Adrian's best friend, Lily, told police that she and Christian didn't have the best relationship, and she would often come to work crying. So police promptly went to speak with Christian, and they took clothes, sheets, and other items for DNA sampling, and they had Christian come to the station as well. Christian was cleared of any suspicion, and unfortunately, police were back to no suspects. All they knew was the DNA of the blood was that of a male, and they were waiting on the crime lab results of the saliva on the cigarettes to see if that matched the DNA
1: from the blood found at the scene. Adrian and Leslie's death affected everyone their family and friends and co workers. Adrian's best friend Lily and her longtime boyfriend Eric Koppel, in the wake of this tragedy, reevaluated what was important to them and ended up getting married several months after their murders. They had been dating for eight years, and Adrian's mother was actually invited to the wedding and read scripture during the ceremony. They actually had previous plans of getting married, but put them on hold, and interestingly enough, their original wedding date was set for November 1st, 2004, the day that Adrian and Leslie were killed.
2: Even though their lives were moving on, and Lily was happy in her new married life, she was also frustrated that the case had gone on for so long without a suspect or an arrest. She was interviewed by Dateline, the same episode we'll be linking, and she said somebody out there knows something, somebody would have had to notice a friend of theirs acting strange, or, you know, had bruises, it doesn't seem like someone could walk away from this and be fine. Police continued to interview and collect DNA from anyone they could draw a connection to, and this investigation went on for almost a year and ended with police interviewing 1,300 people, and they ended up taking 218 DNA samples, but still came up with nothing. In September 2005, the crime lab results came back, finally, and the DNA of the saliva on the cigarettes from the outside of the house did match the DNA of the blood of the killer. The police released this information to the public, and that the killer smoked, and that they smoked a particular and uncommon brand of cigarettes, the camel Turkish golds. The police were hoping that this would get someone to come forward with more information, and it did. Five days later, a man, at the urging of his family, turned himself in to the Napa Police Department. That man was Eric Koppel, husband to Adrian's best friend, Lily.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? To find out if it's right for you.
1: Before Eric turned himself in, he sent two suicide notes, one to his mother and one to his father. But before he could do anything, his family met with him and convinced Eric to turn himself in. As you can imagine, this rocked everyone's world, especially Arlene, Adrian's mother, who was just reading scripture at his wedding months earlier. Eric Koppel was a classic, shy, quiet type, worked as a land surveyor and has never been in any trouble with the law everyone knew him as a nice person quiet but you know nice so the questions on everyone's minds were why did he do it how did lily not see something was wrong with her husband and how did the police not talk or get dna from him in almost a year eric told police that he and lily got into a fight on halloween and lily refused to stay the night with him Eric told police that he and Lily got into a fight on Halloween, and Lily refused to stay the night with him. Eric said he felt his relationship with Lily was slipping away. He was all alone on what was supposed to be his wedding day, then he doesn't remember much after that. He remembers killing them, but he says his eyes were closed while it was happening, and he remembers smoking outside and burning his clothes after he murdered them, but nothing much before or after that does he remember, nor does he give much of a motive. Lily was interviewed by Dateline before her husband came forward, and
2: she honestly just doesn't seem to know anything. In fact, she's adamant that she wants the person caught and she wants justice for her friend. A chilling fact is that during the interview, Eric was in the room at the time. And police said that Eric was on their radar before he turned himself in, and they did try to interview Eric several times, but he was always avoiding them. They were just getting around to really focusing on him as a potential suspect, and then he ended up turning himself in. Eric and the district attorney struck a deal. Eric pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and would spend the rest of his life in prison, but he would avoid the death penalty. Eric also agreed to waive all rights to appeals and agreed to never benefit
1: financially from the deaths of Adrian and Leslie. During the sentencing, the family of the victims got to get up and speak, and you'll see it in the video, of the link of the Dateline video, there are some powerful words by the mothers of the victims. Lily Koppel also spoke, and she said something that, you know, kind of shocked a lot of people, especially Adrian's mother. She said, quote, there's nothing you can do that would make me love you less. She also went on to say that, you know, the man who committed this crime is not the man that I know. Eric had a chance to speak only for a minute and he said,
2: I'm a broken man, a man splintered by penetrating awareness of my own potential for wickedness. Then he goes on some more about being sorry, etc. And Eric was officially
1: sentenced on January 11th, 2006. So for our final thoughts, um, you know, should Lily have maybe seen her husband was hiding something like she said, you know, somebody would notice their friend or something like that. I don't know. I, I feel like I mean, what do you think?
2: I guess it depends on how he was acting. I mean, if he was acting shaken, it could just be because somebody that was close to them got murdered. I don't know if it's on Lily to know that something was up. Maybe he hit it really well. You know, you never know. Yeah. I don't think that – I don't get the impression that Lily was hiding or covering for him. I think she was probably genuinely very
1: shocked by finding out that he was the one that actually killed her friend and roommate. Right. Yeah, I feel – the same actually and you just like you said you don't know how well somebody hides something and you sound like he was a really reserved guy anyway so he probably just withdrew some more and that's oh he's just a quiet guy
2: yeah and i mean again if he's acting you know like stressed or you know shaken that is also a normal response to your friends being murdered yeah exactly yeah so i she might if he was acting shaken because he did it she might have interpreted that as just acting shaken at the situation overall exactly but do you think that the police should have pursued him harder at first? Because I think I would assume that they would have questioned him kind of with the first round if he was like a guy that was kind of in their day-to-day life, which it seemed like he was. Why was he not like pursued more or at least DNA tested, questioned, etc.
1: Yeah. And I guess it could have been maybe they were, you know, making getting the uh, cigarettes back to see if they matched the blood. So then they knew, OK, our killer smoked and was a you know white male you know they knew it was it was a male a white male from the first dna but i think they're waiting for the cigarettes to come back so they could be like okay a white man that smokes turkish gold cigarettes and maybe that's why they kind of waited so long before they because they said they eventually were focusing on him
2: yeah i mean i have that to me reads like an afterthought statement like oh he turned himself in well i was we were were focusing on him we were almost there you know but not quite He beat me to it. Yeah, yeah, he beat us to it. And I think that's kind of a weird, not a, I don't want to say cop out, but like it seems convenient. I I don't understand why his DNA, if they took the DNA samples of 218 people, I don't understand why he was not one of the 218 people considering how close he was to the victims. I feel like that was an oversight um, and they caught a break that he just ended up confessing. Right. Yeah. I also don't care for his statement. Uh, I feel like it focuses a lot about how he has to deal with what a terrible person he could be. I don't know. I guess I just feel like if you're going to go up and say something, you might as well be
1: sorry or, you know, focus on the victims. Right. Yeah. And not like, oh, gosh, I have to deal with the fact that I'm such a horrible person. I can't believe I did. You know, it's like, yeah, well, they have to deal with the fact that you took their loved ones from them. So, you know yeah it just seems self-centered right and i don't know i feel like something i was thinking maybe i don't know adrian was kind of the reason this case got solved i think because she fought she hurt him she got his blood on the scene I, i think if she didn't go down swinging he might have i mean maybe his conscience would have gotten the better of him anyway but The blood was there. That's that's what sealed, you know, kind of the deal, the blood and then the cigarettes, obviously. Oh,
2: definitely. I think she provided the police with like a a very solid, necessary lead. So all they needed to Mm -hmm. do was match the blood to the person without that. Who knows? This case could have gone cold for years if he never Mm -hmm. kind of got like that guilty feeling or people, you know, his family didn't urge him to come forward. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering
1: if he would have never been caught if he didn't start feeling guilty and actually probably not because he was going to kill himself instead of turning himself in so oh yeah you're right so that
2: could have gone a very different way where he never you know
1: took responsibility for what he did and faced you know the whole trial and all that Mm -hmm. exactly he could have just blown his head off or whatever and nobody would have known why and now like you know yeah his blood was there cigarettes are there she she did that she cut him i'm like good
3: for her I mean. Good morning, Your Honor. I'm Arlene Allen. I'd like to thank you for allowing me to speak this morning on behalf of my beloved daughter, Adrian.
0: At his sentencing last January, Arlene Allen finally got her chance to confront Eric Koppel.
3: Eric, you knew Adrian. She counted you among her friends. And you know me. And Eric, I know you. You are a man who violently stabbed to death the best friend of the woman you love that is not love Eric. you cannot love Lily and bring a knife into Adrian's home and stab her and stab her again and again and again and again and again
0: as Arlene drove home the brutality of his deed Eric Koppel sat stone-faced.
3: I say to you, Eric, go. Leave this life of friends and family, of life and love and laughter. There is no place here for you. For while in the coming years, the memory of Leslie and of Adrian will remain clear and shining bright in our hearts, all of our hearts and our minds, you will be forgotten. And when that door closes behind you today as you walk out of this room, I will think of you no more. Thank you, Your Honor. And
2: that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. But before we go, we have some housekeeping.
1: First off, we want to say thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review. So thank you to NickJJ85. Mm. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Manic Monday 23, just another manic. And Nurse Mo 99 for your reviews. Hope I got all those right. I like them. Your reviews help us out a lot, and we really appreciate you taking the time to leave us your feedback.
2: We also want to take a second to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. So, thank you to Minds of Madness for your Patreon support. Your support means so much to us, and we cannot thank you enough. So, if you would like to see our Patreon page and check out our rewards, You can go to Patreon.com slash Misconduct Podcast. And Minds of Madness
1: are awesome. Yeah, I love that podcast. Do you want some Misconduct merch? Guess what? We have a store set up. You can order t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, water bottles, magnets, and more. Our store is set up through Zazzle, so everything you purchase is made to order and drop shipped directly to you. All commission earned on any of the purchases through our store go directly to the podcast. It helps us keep the lights on and the research going.
2: If you're interested, you can go to our website, www.misconductpodcast.com slash store or zazzle.com slash misconduct pod. And remember to use discount codes. They always have discount codes, so you can always save a few extra dollars when you're placing an order.
1: And stay tuned till the end to hear a word from our friends at Mirth and Monsters. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us if you have a second head on over to our facebook group to discuss this week's case if you're not a member join and one of our mods will add you asap we love our group and we love interacting with you guys so if you're not a member join you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at misconduct pod and we want to give a huge shout out to the blank tapes for our intro and outro music follow them on bandcamp to check out more of their stuff if you have a case suggestion let us know about it You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week.
3: Well, hello, my friends. I am C.K. and I'm the host of a new and amusing podcast called Mirths and Monsters. Ever wondered about the cry of the haggis?
2: I can you oh, know? Kind of.
3: Or wondered if a man and his canine companion, say hello, Finn, could travel back in time to watch a celebrity death match between Saint George and the dragon? Wonder no more. All these are answered and more on Mirths and Monsters, available on iTunes, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Catch me on Twitter at Mirths and Monsters or Mirths and Monsters Pod at gmail.com. Till next time, Slanja. Your health.